Thanks everybody for uh, sticking around after a well-deserved break. Uh, we'll continue now with uh, our next speaker, which is uh, Philippe Perez, who, uh, as Bina mentioned earlier, will uh, be talking about and defending, I think, uh, the idea of a universal basic income. Um, again, his presentation will, presentation will be about uh, 40 minutes, I presume. Uh, after which we'll proceed directly into a group di discussion. Uh, and again, you're uh, kindly encouraged to take act active part in this, uh, which will be moderated by uh, Martijn Jeroen van der Linde, who's, uh, yeah. Okay, that's it. I'll give the floor to you now, Philippe. Yes, um, I'll be far modest in terms of range. I'll just be about one very simple idea. Uh, but that fits in one little slot, so, uh, number of little slots in the broader landscape that has been presented uh, before. I'll uh, try to do five things. Uh, one, uh, say what the basic income is and what it is not. Always useful before you start uh, discussing. Two, I'll um, indicate, um, after asking you a question, I'll indicate what uh, I believe uh, are the two uh, crucial and diverging effects of a basic income on the labor market, which is essential to understand its impact more broadly on the economy and on society. Three, I'll then ask uh, whether basic income provides an alternative to capitalism and or an alternative to so-called productivism. Four, I'll look backward to some extent, where did this idea come from? And uh, fifth, last, I'll look forward and think about the next steps. Where are we going with this idea of basic income? So first, uh, what is a basic income and what is it not? Um, basic income is an unconditional income. But unconditional can mean many things, depends on which conditions you are talking about. The best thing for people like most of you Dutch citizens, uh, the easiest way to understand what a basic income uh, is, is of course by contrast with the existing bijstand, uh, the existing uh, minimum income system that exists in, uh, has been existing for now about uh, 40 years in uh, the Netherlands. This baseland is already unconditional in three distinct senses, which are shared by a basic income. And a basic income is unconditional in three additional senses in which baseland is not unconditional. Okay, which are the common unconditionalities first? Well, a basic income is given in cash. And so is, of course, Bestand, huh? as opposed to the food stamps, for example, in the United States, where you get a voucher that enables you to buy only food. Here, Bestand is given in cash, as a basic income would be. That's first unconditionality. Secondly, it's given, uh, it's paid also to people who've never contributed to the system, have never paid social contributions into a system. It's not a social insurance system. Bestand is not, and a basic income is not. 
It's unconditional in this sense. It's also to pay to people who are not in the social insurance system. And three, it is also unconditional in the sense that it's not restricted to citizens, to the people who have the nationality of the country. People who are legal residents but are not nationals are also entitled to it. And uh, so much the better. This holds for Beistand. It also holds for a basic income. But the basic income is unconditional in three additional senses. One, it is strictly individual. So one doesn't need to check uh, whether you are living alone or living with other people to determine whether you are entitled to it and how much you receive. There was this uh, criterion in Holland, as I remember, which was that in order now that you can not, no longer identify living with someone and being married with someone uh, in Holland, like in many countries, probably before many other countries, these two uh, uh, notions, administrative notions of cohabiting and being married uh, became more and more dissociated. So you needed different criteria. At some point, in, as I remember in Holland, it was the criterion of being a vorderdeler, sharing a front door was the, the key thing. But then uh, it soon became clear that this was re not really an adequate criterion for judging whether people were living together. And so you needed to be more and more precise up to the point of being something like a tandem dealer or something like that uh, in order to determine who was really co cohabiting. Anyway, a basic income doesn't need to bother with all this. Uh, you get your basic income, the level of your basic income is independent of uh, your living situation. Second, uh, unconditionality that's specific to a basic uh, income. It is universal in the sense that it's not means tested. It's paid uh, to all the poor people in the country, but also to all the rich people on the, in the country. So no one needs to come and check how much you uh, earn, how much you expect to earn, uh, in order to determine uh, whether you are entitled to it and how much you are going to receive. This is, of course, not the case for the base stand. And finally, it is also unconditional in the sense that it's uh, given, it's paid, no strings attached. So there is no counterpart that is uh, requested in terms that is imposed in uh, the form of uh, being available for work or doing some community work or accepted to accept agreeing to do some training or whatever it's also unconditional in this sense each of these unconditionalities are logically independent of the other you could have any combination of them in the case of a basic income you need to have a basic income by definition satisfies all four all six of these unconditionalities this is point one two um, now that we know what it is, now that it's clear in our minds what it is, let me ask you a question, a simple question. If you have a basic income, will that lead to a rise in the wage levels, or will it lead to a fall in the wage levels? Uh, will wages increase, will they decrease? as a result of the introduction of a basic income. Okay? Think about it for 20 seconds, and then I'll ask you to raise your hands. Huh? Okay? To will a basic income... No, this is too early. <laughs> 20 seconds. 
You can't ask uh, questions of clarification. I, uh, okay. Right. So who among you, so I repeat the question, if you introduce a basic income, can we expect the wa wages to rise or can we expect them to fall? Who thinks that uh, the wages will rise as a result of it? Those raise their hand. Okay. For some reason, everyone, <laughs> all the people who think so are in that <laughs> corner. Do you become to belong to some sort of club and it's not by uh, <laughs> Okay. Who? <laughs> okay. So uh, that was uh, rising, right? Yeah. Okay. Who believes that the wages are going to fall? Those raise their hands. Okay. <laughs> who doesn't know? Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, I thought uh, the organizer told me I had a well-informed public in front of the... <laughs> so I said, what's happening? So, um, right, uh, so what's uh, the correct answer to this question? Well, the uh, correct answer is uh, yes and no, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, why? Well, because of one thing that's really absolutely essential in the proposal of basic income, which is the conjunction of the last two unconditionalities. Uh, the last two I mentioned are one that it's universal, so it's a really floor income given to the rich and the poor. So that means that if you work, you keep your basic income in full. Uh, so it's combined with you, the income you receive from your work. That's one of the unconditionalities, the penultimate, the, the, the penultimate I mentioned. And then the last one I mentioned, it's also given to you, no strings attached, so which means that uh, if you are not pleased with the job you uh, are holding, you can give it up and you are still entitled to a basic income, right? And no one can force you to take you immediately the first job that comes. And of course these two things, uh, these two unconditionalities will push in different direction. Because the first of the ones, of the two I just mentioned, will enable you to accept a job, will make some jobs viable, which are not viable now, but which are attractive enough in themselves. Huh? Jobs that provide a lot of training, for example, internships, huh? stage, huh? so where uh, you, you can learn, even in some cases totally and pay jobs or jobs that pay only 50 cents per hour or something, but uh, that are uh, interesting enough in themselves, well, you'll be willing to do them if you have some income on which you can rely. But at the same time, at the same time, because of the last unconditionality, if you have a really shitty job uh, and you know that if you give it up, it's not only that under the alternative basic income may not be enough to live comfortably, but it gives you all sorts of other options of combining with part-time work or some self-employed work of some sort, etc. So if you are really in an unsatisfactory job, you don't learn anything, the boss is awful with you, the colleagues are uh, really uh, sort of uh, not nice to be with, whatever, you can give it up and you are still entitled to things. So that means, uh, and that is really crucial, that means that some jobs will be systematically encouraged, uh, facilitated, will develop. Uh, those which are 
interesting in themselves or through the training or the prospects they provide, and some other jobs will be systematically discouraged. People won't want to do them, then that means that if these jobs are essential, if their quality cannot be improved, if they cannot be automatized, well, they'll have to be paid more. And that makes you see then the, what the nature of the impact of the basic income on the labor market will be, and thereby also more broadly on the economy. It will operate as a sort of filtering devices among jobs so that the average quality of the jobs will increase. And because what you do with the basic income is give power, disseminate power, give power to the people who know which jobs are shitty and which jobs are interesting. There is no legislator, no bureaucrat, no academic who can say which jobs are really interesting and which not, which are pleasant and which not. The people who know it are the people, are the workers, or the potential workers, the people who experience what the job is and can decide, no, this job is worth doing and this job is not worth doing. So what the basic income does is that. At the same time, it's a way of redistributing, not just of filtering some jobs, huh? encouraging a particular ty type of job, discouraging another type of job, but it's also a way of affecting the distribution of employment and indeed of paid and unpaid uh, activities. One of the uh, nice, very early formulations of this idea was to be found in uh, a couple of articles by a Dutch professor of social medicine, a certain Jan Peter Kuiper, who wrote in the late 70s. And uh, this man, professor at the Vrije Universiteit Amsterdam, uh, said, uh, grosso modo, the following. It's my words, but it's uh, his uh, idea. He said, among my patients, huh, I have two categories. I have the people who come and are sick because they work too much. And I have people who are sick because they can't find a job. Well, surely this is a stupid sort of economic system in which we are. And that's how he came to the idea of a basic income, because a basic income, again, because of the combination of these two unconditionalities, at the same time, it makes it possible for people to reduce their working time, to take a break in order to just breathe a bit or think about what they'll next do with their lives, so uh, get further training or look better after their kids for a period, uh, etc. And then at the same time, it enables some other people, including some other people who couldn't take a full-time job for psychological reasons, family obligation reasons, etc. It enables them to get into the jobs that are being vacated by the first type of uh, workers. Okay, so uh, you can see then uh, what the sort of impact the basic income can have on the labor market as it uh, functions and by filtering out some jobs, filtering in some other jobs, and by this redistributing uh, employment in a more intelligent way than what is currently done. Three then, my third point, let me ask you uh, that question to you again. I'll give you 25 seconds to think about it because the question is more difficult than the previous one. Um, is, uh, so, uh, two questions. One uh, is, does the basic income, does the basic income provide an alternative to capitalism? Uh, okay. And the other one uh, is, does the basic income provide an alternative to productivism? Right? Uh, I'll ask you to think about both questions at the same time. So, 
productivism. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking the questions. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, and so, because you can ask the same question about capitalism, and I'll return to that, but uh, obviously uh, capitalism must have something to do with domination of capital, and uh, uh, productivism something to do with the obsession with production. But I'll need to return to the precise definition of these terms in a minute. But before that, uh, within half a minute, you have to decide whether or not basic income provides an alternative to capitalism and whether it provides an alternative to productivism. So think about it. Can you choose yes and no? This no, uh, yes or no, because otherwise you make things too complicated. <laughs> It can be, if you think it's a bit of yes, a bit of no, you can say, well, it's more no than yes. If you, if you think it's more no than yes, then you raise your hand when I asked whether it's no. Okay. Okay, that's, uh, that's it. Then, uh, first then, uh, does uh, basically provide an alternative to capitalism? Who those who think uh, yes, or rather yes, those raise their hand. Okay. Uh, okay, a bit uh, dispersed uh, and timid, but uh, uh, who thinks no? It provides no alternative to capitalism, so a significant majority. Then uh, who, provides, uh, who thinks that it provides uh, an alternative to productivism? Those who raise their hand. Okay, those who think it does not provide an alternative to, okay, that, uh, it's uh, some minority, not uh, insignificant. Uh, okay, right, so um, uh, it's uh, rather, I've already forgotten what the majorities were, what, uh, uh, <laughs> okay, anyway, it doesn't matter that much, because uh, the, the answer, <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, the answer, let, let me, here I have to look at my notes to see what the... <laughs> <laughs> right, um, yes, uh, the, well, uh, does it provide an alternative to the capitalism? The answer is no, yes, and yes. And um, whereas, whereas uh, in the case of productivism, does it provide an alternative to productivism? There the answer is yes, yes, and no. So it's, uh, now, let me explain. Um, well, the alternative to, to capitalism first. Then the question is, of course, what is capitalism? And first to explain um, the no. Uh, why is it not an alternative to capitalism, basic income? Well, because basic income as such doesn't change anything in the regime of ownership of the means of production. It will therefore not um, change uh, the fact that production, uh, that is the uh, market production, indirectly also state production, will be essentially guided by prices, by market prices. Uh, so uh, when decisions of production will be taken, it will be taken in the light of prices that will reflect how valuable the resources are that are being used in production and also reflect the extent to which what is being produced is being demanded by uh, the population, or at least the population which has money to spend. Hmm? This is what a capitalist system is, and this is, in, in this first uh, sense, and 
this will not be changed by a basic income. And I would say uh, rightly so, rightly so, because I don't think we can dispense with this fabulous instrument of coordination of complex economies, not small communities, but of complex economies, which is the price system. And prices provide a sort of, constantly provide a sort of synthetic uh, uh, image, a synthetic uh, summary of uh, both how valuable res the resources are, which we need to use in order to produce something, and how uh, high the demand is for what is uh, being produced. Of course, prices often need to be, uh, to, to be sort of collectively affected by state intervention in order to, as the economists put it, internalize externalities and so on. It, uh, the best prices are not the most spontaneous uh, prices. You need to, um, to, to sort of uh, shape them or, or uh, modify them in order to better reflect how really um, uh, scales the various resources are, are really valuable, the various resources are, but they are absolutely essential to coordinate complex economies. Indeed, even if we had uh, collective ownership of the means of production, state ownership of the means of production, uh, we would need to introduce, uh, as uh, Soviet economies try to do, but far too imperfectly, we need to introduce some quasi-prices of pseudo-prices in order to be able to coordinate these millions of uncoordinated decisions to be taken by individual firms and by uh, households. So. I think in this sense, basic income does not provide an alternative to capitalism. Capitalism has the private ownership of the means of production, of not all means of production, but a, a significant part of the means of production. And I think in, although we could dispense with that, we could have a, 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 a sort of a, an economy functioning according to use values rather than exchange values if we had a sufficiently small uh, uh, level of functioning of our economies, in our complex economies, we cannot do so. But then there are two other senses of uh, capitalism which are uh, worth uh, considering. And there the answer is yes, basic income provides an alternative. One of them, uh, of course, uh, capitalism is also, uh, sort of uh, paradigmatically, uh, is also a system in which uh, there are people who have no option but to sell their labor power to the capitalist, right? And this, of course, uh, is radically challenged by a basic income. Hmm? Basic income would be, uh, would, would be what provides an alternative to being constantly forced to sell your labor power to a capitalist. And so if, if that, if the proletarian, in Marx's sense, is essential to capitalism, well, we would get rid of the proletarian because the proletarian was defined as someone who had no option but to sell his labor power, his or her labor power, uh, to uh, the capitalist. So in this sense, yes, of course, it provides one, and a radical uh, one. So some Marxist critics of uh, basic income, who find basic income a fantastic idea, uh, say precisely, that, that is the reason why we need socialism, because the capitalists will never accept the introduction of a basic income, which would give this uh, uh, alternative option to every single potential worker. Okay? But in this sense, it does provide an alternative to capitalism. And it does also provide an alternative to capitalism, and also what could be called 
laborism in a, a different sense. Because what the basic income does can be described as follows. And again, in Marxist terms. Marx distinguished what he called necessary work, necessary labor, notwendige uh, Arbeit, from what he called a surplus uh, labor, mehr uh, Arbeit. What was the difference? Necessary uh, labor is the work, uh, the labor, that is necessary in order to produce what is required to reproduce the labor power. Okay? And whatever is, is produced on top of that, so what is the product of the surplus labor, uh, this is then appropriated by the capitalist. Hmm. What, and so, uh, what's, what's not and uh, what's produced in addition to what is required to reproduce the labor power and also the other means of production, the machines, etc. And that's, uh, that's appropriated by the capitalist. Of course, what's happened after Marx is that thanks to the, the vigorous and partly victorious uh, struggle of the labor movement, is that a significant part of what you call, could call that rent, uh, what, which came from capital accumulation and from technological progress, all these things, this surplus that could be produced over and above what was strictly required to reproduce the labor, the labor power, and there's a lot of it today. Uh, I earn far more than what is required to uh, reproduce my, my labor power, and that holds uh, certainly for the best paid among uh, the people in the room uh, today, and globally for uh, the, the bulk of the population in our rich countries. Well, part of that was then appropriated by the workers. And, of course, in proportion to their own uh, human capital as valued by the market, and in proportion also to the bargaining power they happen to have in that particular firm, in that particular industry. And so what happened in the history of capitalism, post-Marxian capitalism, as, if you wish, is that what you would call a shift from capitalism to a combination of capitalism and laborism, that part of this rent, this surplus, was a is still appropriated by the capitalist, but a growing part of it, if you look at it over the course of the 20th century, uh, a, a growing part of it was appropriated also by the labor movement and served in part also to finance uh, the social security system and so on. And what a basic income does, uh, so one sort of, I think, very important way of looking at it is that, in fact, it says, well, of course, it was good that this rent, thanks to the labor movement, was not just monopolized by the capitalists, but shared more widely in the population through being grabbed by the workers uh, and uh, uh, beat very unequally by the workers, but nevertheless grabbed by the workers and therefore spread more widely in society. The surplus was therefore spread uh, far beyond the capitalist class. This was very good, but in fact, we should go further and not just let this rent be distributed in a way, in some sense, in a ethically speaking haphazard way uh, among uh, workers in proportion to how much they work, in proportion to how valuable their skills are, in proportion to the bargaining power of the particular uh, group in the working class to which they belong. We should rather distribute it equally among all citizens. And this is exactly what a basic income does. Right? So in this sense, uh, it's an alternative. And uh, you could say, well, this is true socialism, where part of the rent is distributed among all members of society, rather than laborism, where part of it is grabbed 
by the working class in proportion to how much they work, etc. And of course, an alternative to what you call, could call then pure capitalism, where the capitalists would reap the whole of the rent and to uh, the whole of the surplus and what goes above the product of the notwendige Arbeit. Okay? Pro <coughs> productivism. Um, so there I said uh, no, no, yes. Uh, okay, so no uh, in, um, no, I say yes, yes, no, uh, yes, yes, no, yes. Uh, first, uh, first yes is that in what sense does basic income provide uh, an alternative to productivism? Well, and that's the most obvious way to understand it. It's really central to the advocacy to for basic income in, in many circles. It says the following. In fact, from where uh, does the consensus come, um, the, the pro-growth consensus come? Hmm? Right and left, the big coalition in favor of growth. Well, it essentially comes from the idea that massive unemployment, massive involuntary unemployment is a bad thing. And the most obvious strategy to fight hmm, existing massive unemployment and to prevent future uh, unemployment, uh, the, the most obvious strategy consists in making the economy grow faster than the uh, rate of productivity growth. Okay, and productivity increases and uh, the amount of what you can produce per hour of work. And if you don't want to have more and more unemployment, you need to make the economy grow faster than productivity, right? And so the right and the left say, well, we need to prevent this mass unemployment, so let's go for growth, growth, growth. Okay. Then, obviously, a basic income, partly for the reasons I've just alluded to, hmm, <laughs> enables you to address the question of unemployment and the problem of unemployment. It doesn't say unemployment doesn't matter. No, it addresses the problem on, on, of unemployment, but without relying on growth. By saying what, and by uncoupling partly the contribution to growth to the product and the, uh, the, the return from uh, the, the income from, from uh, this uh, growth by uncoupling it partly, what it makes possible is in fact to address the problem of unemployment without relying on growth. Because it says, well, um, essentially because it provides an intelligent way of sharing the existing work. It says, well, you get some income and conditioning, so you can reduce your working time hmm, and at a lesser cost than what uh, you, would, uh, you, you would face uh, otherwise. Hmm. And at the same time, some other people can get access to work. Hmm. So you transform, in a way, some of the existing employment into voluntary unemployment, some of the existing involuntary unemployment into voluntary unemployment and some of it into employment. And that's what you do, uh, essentially, uh, by uh, having a basic income irrespective, uh, totally unconditional with respect uh, to uh, contribution to uh, growth. Uh, so, and to, and again, to put it uh, simply, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, an alternative to productivism because it provides a way of addressing involuntary unemployment that doesn't rely on a growth that would be, need to be faster than uh, the growth of productivity, the increase in productivity. So that's one yes. Then there is a second yes, which is closely related to much of what 
has been uh, discussed by Catherine before and uh, illustrated also by Sarah, which is that, of course, a basic income is a sort of systematic subsidy hmm, to what might be called uh, the commoning economy or certainly some uh, components of it, or what uh, the, the way I usually describe it, using uh, uh, André Gorse's formula, the autonomous sphere. So the part of uh, the uh, economic activity, the part of production, that is neither within the uh, market sphere nor within the state sphere. And I saw in the quote from Federici, I think, uh, before, was that the name, Federici? And so there was a connection that was explicitly made between commoning and what she called the autonomous space. So it's really this idea. So in Gorse, you have this negative definition of the so-called autonomous sphere, uh, defined as being neither the market nor the state. We shouldn't have too sort of mythical view about what the autonomous sphere is, and there are not only... Uh, nice activities there, uh, criminal activities also are also part of, uh, or certainly some criminal activities are certainly part of the autonomous sphere uh, as well. But in some sense, of course, we can say that under and uh, the, the gross national product as usually measured is the sum of what happens within the market and within the state. And uh, a basic income is a systematic encouragement, systematic subsidy that is being given to the non-state, non-market uh, uh, part of uh, the economy. So in this sense, too, it is uh, not unrelated to the, the first one, but nevertheless distinct from the first one. There is uh, basic income is also, also provides an alternative to productivism. Now, basic income does not provide a an alternative to productivism, hence uh, your question was uh, certainly <laughs> very appropriate in a different sense, because we need to keep uh, being concerned about productivity. I think the productivity, uh, in the good sense, in the making, not wasting resources, making a good use of the existing resources, and in this sense, productivity must remain an important uh, concern. We must keep encouraging inventiveness, innovation, of course, in a broad sense, that is not only sort of a economically lucrative uh, innovation, but also in other sense that we need to keep encouraging them. And of course, what basic, basic income supporters say, or certainly many basic income supporters say, is that the basic income also make, makes economic sense because it is an investment in the human capital of the people. It enables people not only to take a break in order to uh, get uh, further training, in order to change career before it's too late for them to, uh, to, 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 to go in a different direction, but it's also a way for them to, 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 to take more time for the, uh, the, the human capital of the next generation, looking after their children at the time uh, the children need, need them. So in, in these various senses, it's really an investment in uh, the productivity, well-conceived, broadly conceived in, in our society, as opposed, I, I should say, uh, to other forms of uh, work sharing, employment sharing, like uh, an authoritarian uh, top-down uh, reduction in the weekly, uh, in the, the, the working week, uh, which uh, like the, the friend on the French model or other models, uh, which are really impediments and so the obstacles to uh, a productive functioning of 
uh, our society and which are, and so you, you quickly face either something that's deeply inefficient or deeply unfair when you look at it uh, in detail. And the only reason why some people prefer that model of work sharing, employment sharing to a basic income model that is far more flexible is because they remain stuck within the old laborist model of social protection. This takes me to the uh, next point, the fourth point and penultimate point of what I wanted to say, uh, which is a brief look backward, and then I'll finish with a brief look forward. Um, and the brief look uh, backward uh, quickly connects to what I just said. In fact, when you uh, look at it historically, we've had three models of social protection, of, if you wish, social solidarity, but in a very broad sense then. It's a bit misleading to talk about solidarity. But the three models of social protection. You have one that was first imagined and tested in the, at the beginning of the 16th century, quite a bit in the lower countries, in fact. The first uh, formulation of it, systematic formulation, was in a book published in 1526 uh, by a certain Juan Luis Vives, who was born in Valencia, Spain, but migrated to Bruges. And, uh, and in this uh, little, uh, little book, he proposed for the first time uh, the public assistance. And he, he says we should no longer rely exclusively on private charity, but the municipal authorities should be in charge of public assistance. That led then uh, gradually to some schemes in uh, Flanders, uh, to the English uh, poor laws uh, later on, uh, old poor laws, new poor laws, uh, to, uh, and to things like the Bestand uh, in uh, Holland much later, or uh, to uh, the Bolsa Familia in Brazil today. Public assistance, uh, you have some sort of taxes and you, have, uh, you aid, you assist, you subsidize the poor. That's the first model. Then you have a second model that uh, was born in a way in the head of the Marquis de Condorcet at the end of uh, the 18th century, shortly after the French Revolution, which is the model of social insurance, it, which is very different. It says, well, what we need is not this sort of going to tax some of the rich to pay for the poor. No, what we need is that we should all organize, we citizens, we workers, then uh, we workers, and we save part of our money, put it into a fund, and that will cover us when some risks materialize. When we are ill, when we are old, uh, when we are unemployed, this will cover us. That's a completely different model of social protection. Uh, different in all sorts of respects, I won't go into detail. It was first implemented on a significant modest, but still significant uh, scale one century later, oh, in the 1880s, by Bismarck in Germany as part of his uh, sort of attempt to unify, a successful attempt to unify Germany, okay? And then it spread further, that was, and became then the, inspired the, the, the New Deal, but also the social security system that became mainly social assistance systems, also in, in Holland, in, in Belgium, in France, uh, and so on, uh, and the, the social insurance aspect of the beverage report in, in uh, Germany, and the bulk of our social protection system in quantitative terms in country like the Netherlands is this second model. And then you have the third model, which is basic income. 
which is, uh, again, uh, it's totally conceptually, completely different matter. Here it's part, in a way, of the rent, uh, of the surplus that has been possible, thanks to capital accumulation in the past, uh, all the roads and the railways that have been built and all that, uh, and technological advance, and organization of our society in all sorts of ways, that enables us uh, to have this huge surplus uh, that we, uh, that I earn so much more than uh, in real, my real income is so much more than people who were doing the same sort of job one century ago in my country, or the people who are still doing the same sort of job as me, probably with more efforts than I do in Calcutta or in uh, Kinshasa or whatever. And so there is, a, there is a huge surplus there. And this huge surplus, that's the third model, we say we distribute it equally between all. And so it's, and you could say that the first model is a sort of top-down model. And so where you have public assistance, where we take from the rich and the rich give to the poor. The second model is a sort of horizontal model where uh, the solidarity between all the people who work, who put some money aside for, the, uh, for cases when, they are, uh, when risks uh, materialize. And the third model, you could see it as a sort of bottom-up model where what you do is in fact uh, to introduce a, a sort of sokkelinkomen, uh, a vloerinkomen. Uh, 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 you, you put under the whole distribution of income, uh, you put an, uh, an income that is unconditional and then that can be combined in various ways with other sources of income. I should add immediately, and that is important, that these three models have to be combined. Basic income must not be proposed as an alternative to all the rest to say now we check out uh, all these things that belong to the past and we replace it by a basic income. Basic income is the, the sockle, uh, there's no good expression for that in, in, in English, uh, so the sort of base, uh, the floor, which you put under all the rest. And we'll still need an, uh, um, social insurance uh, with earnings related uh, benefits in case you lose your job, in case, and for old age pensions that remain related to the incomes you uh, earned and in a way part of which you saved throughout uh, your careers. And also it will need to, for any uh, reasonable uh, level of basic income, it will still need to be supplemented for people who have no other income by some uh, form of best on some form of uh, public assistance. That's um, then where, uh, so the third model, where did it first appear? Be very brief on that. So uh, you could say, well, the, the first formulation of something quite close to it, not quite it, was by Thomas Paine, who was a friend of this Marquis de Condorcet I just mentioned, and who about the same year, Condorcet just committed suicide shortly afterwards. Uh, uh, Payne, uh, pub well, didn't publish, but uh, wrote this uh, little memoir for the French Directoire under the title Agrarian Justice, in which he advocated uh, a sort of basic uh, endowment that would be given to every young person aged 21, uh, man or woman, rich or poor, whatever they had done before, married or not, didn't matter, they would each receive. Uh, a certain amount of money, and then in addition to that, there would be a basic pension from age 50, hmm? which wasn't too expensive because many people died before 50 at the time, and uh, few survived much after 50. But that was his idea, funded how? Through uh, a sort of uh, rent, a basic uh, a rent on all the land. Huh? So he said, land is, ethically speaking, our common property, 
and we should, uh, so the rent on that land, the rent on that land should be paid by the people who've appropriated it very unequally, and this rent should serve then to fund both the endowment for the young and the pension for the old. The first one to propose a basic income at the level of a country, in the form of a real basic income paid annually, was a certain uh, 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 Joseph Charlier. Uh, we are in 1848. Uh, Marx uh, just was in Brussels, just uh, finished writing, uh, wrote the, the Communist Manifesto in the first month of, uh, of uh, uh, 48. And then in September 48, same year, same city, also in Brussels, Joseph Charlier published a book uh, under the ambitious title Solution du problème social, Solution of the Social Problem. No one, I think practically no one read that book because it was, uh, by way of publisher, it said chez tous les libraires du royaume, which means essentially paid for it himself. And, um, and of course, compared to the uh, worldwide success of uh, the Communist Manifesto, just written a few, uh, a few streets away from him, uh, it pales. Uh, but perhaps today, uh, 150 years later, the prospects for the realization of uh, uh, Charlier's uh, idea is greater than the prospects for the realization of uh, Marx's manifesto, even though the most populated country of the world still has the Communist Manifesto as its uh, gospel, right? Anyway, so um, after that, and so I, I, we can return to that if you wish uh, afterwards, but I'll just, uh, so it came, the idea then was forgotten and when not even forgotten, not even perceived, I think, uh, at the time, come, comes back now and then. A bit more, there is something like a debate within the British Labour Party after the First World War, uh, with um, an impact later on, uh, an Oxford academic called George Cole, James Mead, also close within the, to the Labour Party, who became a Nobel laureate in economics later on and defended basic income all the way to the end of his life, but already in the 1930s. So some debate in England at the time. A debate also at the end of the 1960s, early 70s in the United States with Jim Tobin, also later Nobel laureate, John Kenneth Galbraith, and then George McGovern, a candidate for the Democratic Party, defended the idea under the name uh, Democrat, and then it was swept away by uh, the, well, in the Reagan years, uh, etc., but uh, left some uh, minor traces. And then it started again uh, in uh, Europe, uh, timidly at the end of the 1970s and uh, more in the, in the 1980s, in particular in the Netherlands, in particular in the Netherlands. I, uh, I already mentioned this young Peter Kuyper, published two articles, not a huge impact. But then there were a number of things that happened. There, is, uh, there was then a, a political party since then absorbed by Links called the PPR. And uh, one of the, the, the person in charge of its study center, someone called uh, Bram van Oyek, who resurfaced uh, not uh, so long ago when he became uh, much later, 30 years later or more, um, than the chair or group chair of, of Links uh, now in in later years, but he published a couple of uh, pamphlets in favor of uh, basic income. It was defended by a trade union, the Voedingsbond uh, uh, FNV, led by uh, Rachel Lubby at the time, which was the main spearhead of the movement in favor uh, of um, basic income. And there were a number of other things. For example, there was um, 
bond tegen het arbeidethos. Uh, led by someone whose name I forgot, but who looked a bit like you, in fact, as I uh, remember. But it wasn't you, because this was before you were born. And uh, so the, and, and there were, but uh, to show the diversity, and then um, I, I, in fact, I taught at uh, as Gasdo Center at the Universiteit van Amsterdam for one semester at the beginning uh, of uh, 85. And then there was something absolutely incredible, which was uh, before the end of my stay, I saw the, the Rune Amsterdammer, which had a full page under the title The Triumphantelijke Terugkeer van het Basisinkomen. I couldn't believe it. And I explained that uh, uh, a number of last packer from uh, uh, various parties, various uh, groups had, had um, uh, converged to that idea. And in fact, one of these last packer was then the, the chair of a commission of the VRR, Wetenschappelijke Raad voor het Regeringsbeleid, of so it's, and, um, which came out with, a, uh, with a, a, a an official document that uh, advocated a partial basic income. I saw later on then, for any such report, then the, the government has to give an official reply. I saw the text of the official reply signed by Prime Minister Lubbers at the time, and that explained that the time was not ripe for uh, that idea. Indeed, now we are quite a few years later, and uh, the time has not come. But, but um, that was 85, and then 86, we gathered a number of people defending that, in ID, that idea in Europe, uh, we created the Basic Income European Network in September 86, well, soon to celebrate the, the 30 years of it. And a number of uh, networks developed uh, in various countries, including in this country, uh, Adrian is there, uh, the Vereniging Basisinkomen, found, founded in 91, a bit uh, later, right? Uh, going 25 years uh, geleden, uh, 25 years ago, uh, and uh, that is going to celebrate at the end of this month its uh, 25th anniversary in Maastricht. Uh, but the, and Holland was really a forerunner for the reasons I just uh, mentioned. But then more and more uh, associations uh, were created also in other countries. We held a congress every second year in uh, 2004. Uh, under the pressure of a Brazilian senator who is about to receive an honorary degree from my university at the end of this month, uh, the, uh, the Basic Income European Network became the Basic Income Earth Network. It became worldwide. We thought we could abandon the European but couldn't abandon the acronym, right? Bien. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so we had to stick to it, even though Basic Income Earth Network, I don't know how well it sounds. But anyway, so that's... Uh, and uh, so the, the last uh, Congress was held in Montreal in Canada, and the next one, as I mentioned, uh, will be held in Seoul uh, now at the beginning uh, of July. So the ID has been progressing. Uh, last point, then, and quickly, uh, uh, five, I said this, this was looking backward quickly. Now looking forward, um, so where are we going? Um, Will uh, basic income be distributed this year to uh, all the citizens of uh, some entity? What do you think? Yes, no? No. no. The answer is yes. And uh, uh, in, in two places, in, two places in, in the world, that is uh, uh, in Alaska uh, and in Macau. Uh, so uh, in Alaska, since uh, 1982, 
there is a dividend uh, that is being paid uh, once a year to every uh, permanent resident of uh, legal, every legal resident of Alaska from uh, age zero to uh, death. And um, uh, that uh, is, in fact, a dividend on a fund that has been created and developed uh, from the uh, exploitation of oil in, uh, in the northern part of uh, Alaska. <laughs> it's invested, it's invested uh, worldwide, but, uh, but um, that means it fluctuates, the amount fluctuates according to the uh, according to the what, what was the Alaska or uh, no. ah okay. Sorry. It's like based on destruction of ecosystems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, but not quite so in Macau huh? because uh, in Macau that's more recent. Uh, they've done it now four times or so. There it's uh, it's uh, uh, there's also payment every year and it's. <laughs> Part of the of the revenues from the casinos, right? From the casino. <laughs> is, is that is that any better? <laughs> but but what you need to bear in mind, uh, what is often not done so when uh, also in the basic income movement, is that the amount that is being paid there is between two and three percent of the GDP per capita of Alaska, two or three percent. It varies from year to year, also in Kamakao it varies, but it's in that order, two or three percent, right? Um, in, uh, to, to, give, to give an idea, uh, so the, um, uh, in, in Holland, for example, if you had a sort of uh, amount, uh, I think 600 euros in uh, Holland would uh, correspond to 25 percent of GDP per capita in Holland. Huh? So, so that means you can see what it means in the... Okay, uh, I should say then, which way forward, there is something else that will happen this year. I don't know, there will be a referendum in the country about the basic income, do you know where? Switzerland. Switzerland, there are a few people, a few countries which have referendums, so that was an easy question. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, on basic income, most likely now it seems to be on the on the fifth of June. Initially, it was uh, rather expected in in September, but it will already be on the fifth of June. Uh, the way it it happens in Switzerland is that there was a popular initiative that needed to gather one one hundred thousand uh, signatures. Uh, it uh, got them without uh, much problem in a, in eighteen months, and then. Uh, the government has to give an opinion about it, and the, the two chambers of the parliament uh, have to give an opinion uh, uh, about it, and then it goes to a referendum. The government uh, gave its opinion about it. It said it's a crazy idea, uh, unanimously. Uh, then the, the first uh, chamber um, had to give an opinion about it, and uh, nearly everyone said it's a bad idea. Uh, the leader of the, uh, the spokesman of the uh, right-wing party, there is a uh, nationalist party, Swiss nationalist party, said this is the most uh, uh, dangerous and uh, damaging idea that has ever been put to referendum in Switzerland. Nevertheless, there were some people in favor, uh, all belonging to the socialist party and to the green party, but both divided. And, um, and then it went to the to the second chamber, which is the chamber of the cantons, the representative of the cantons, and there no one voted in favor of it, because the, the, when you have representatives of the cantons, of course, it's less proportional 
for and it, it has less representatives from the various components of the population because you have a limited two or three representatives from each uh, canton. So I think a safe uh, uh, a safe uh, forecast for the result is that the Swiss people will also say no. But uh, much depends on how the proposal will be phrased because the f the the text uh, says doesn't mention any amount, but uh, in the comments by the initiators, they mention 2,500 Swiss francs per month. That is about 2,000 euros uh, uh, per month and 35% of uh, GDP per capita in Switzerland. So it's a huge, even for Switzerland, it's a huge amount. And I don't think it's a reasonable uh, it's a reasonable proposal. Which way should we go forward? Can we go forward with uh, experiments? As uh, some of you uh, probably know, most more than probably know, uh, there are some experiments be of basic income experiments in some sense being envisaged in the city of Utrecht, which uh, uh, pioneered with uh, and is going to do it uh, in all likelihood from the 1st of January 2017 at the same time as three other uh, cities. Um, I uh, don't know how many, do I have uh, two more minutes? So, yeah, and so I, I, I won't, uh, uh, we can return to these experiments in more uh, detail afterwards. I don't think these experiments will teach us much of what we need to know uh, to determine whether uh, the idea of a basic income is a good idea or not. Essentially, I mentioned them telegraph telegraphically for three reasons. One is that you cannot extrapolate uh, from the reaction of people when they are told you'll get a basic income uh, for two years or three years to what they would do if uh, they are told now you get a basic income for the rest of your life. That's one. Two, uh, you cannot uh, extrapolate from what people would do in this situation from the reaction of the whole of uh, an economic system and a labor market to the introduction of something like that. In part because of the time limit and some of the effects, including the effects I mentioned before about the rise or the fall in the wages for different sort of jobs would not happen within a short span. You need more time. And in part because even if you had more time, but you have only a small number of people who are given this basic income, it will not have any aggregate effect on the labor market. You need the whole community to uh, have this basic income for these various effects I mentioned. So whether you, for the positive, so-called positive or so-called negative, uh, impacts of um, of, a, uh, of a, the real introduction of a basic income, you could not infer anything from this sort of experiment. And thirdly and lastly, you can never experiment the net funding side of uh, basic income. You can tell people, as will be done in Utrecht, look, uh, we are going to try something and you'll get more money than you would otherwise get, or you'll get it under uh, looser conditions than what you would otherwise would what what would otherwise be the case, but you can never say now we are going to make an experiment and uh, Adrian and Philippe are going to pay more taxes than uh, would otherwise be the case because this basic income needs to be funded and then we'll see how they react. You can't do that. Uh, you can also in the big negative income experiments in the U.S. They never 
They could never, uh, they could never test the, the funding side. And so people opposed to basic income will always and legitimately say, you can't say from the basis of these experiments what would happen because you neglect the whole of the funding side. And that will also, of course, affect the, the viability of the thing. So I don't think much hope needs to be put in these experiments. Something can be learned. I'm not against them doing them. And, uh, and it certainly creates some interest for basic income, makes people think about it. There's a bigger experiment being promised in Finland. <coughs> and I would make exactly the same remarks about, about that. Which way forward? the same way forward as what happened with the first two models of social protection, uh, public assistance and uh, social assistance uh, and social insurance. And what was that? It's simply starting modestly. That is, you start with small amounts and uh, with, uh, in some cases, stricter conditions or age conditions and things like that, and then you gradually expand it. And that's how it was done for public assistance, how it was done for social insurance. And so in the case of a basic income, we need to introduce a so-called partial basic income, insufficient for living on it uh, if one lives on, on one, one's own. But that would nevertheless make a significant difference in people's options. If you get 500 euros per month, may not be enough for you to live on if you want to live in Utrecht and have to pay your, your rent and live on your own will certainly not be enough, but it will nevertheless give you more options, huh, depending on who you live with, on whether you have some savings, on whether you can borrow some money in order to, and it enables you then to give up a job more easily than would be the case, and some of the impacts I mentioned before would already be there. Not to the same extent as if it was higher, but that is the way forward. Thank you for your attention.